Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I am a yoga teacher with many years of experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is to show you how to get confident, speak clearly, feel authentic, grow your impact, earn your worth, and build a community. For years, I've been working with teachers in my signature program, the Yoga Anatomy Blueprint Learning Program, and I've seen so many teachers transform, and I can help you get there too. On the podcast, you'll hear anatomy lessons, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. In addition to the podcast, don't forget to also follow me on Instagram and TikTok for daily videos on teaching topics. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. Let's get into today's episode. Hi there. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. My name is Karen Fabian, and I will be your host. This is episode 234. So I am recording this on March 30th, and this will go live on, oh my goodness, this will go live, I'm looking at the calendar, on April, what is it? Let's see, let's go to the calendar here. This will go live on April 3rd, 2023. So that's in a few days, but that means that we are at the end of quarter one. And I know, of course, talking about quarters is like super common in the financial world and in the corporate world. Um, but I also think of it just energetically, chronologically, spiritually, emotionally. <laughs> I think of it from the perspective of any goals that you set at the beginning of the year. Like, where are you these days? Like, where are things for you? I had actually done uh, a little journaling in January, the first week of January. And one of the things I did was I wrote a couple of goals as if they were already done in my date book, because I still use an old school date book. And when I turned to this week in my date book, I saw uh, some of the things that I wrote down. and. I'm not 100% there. I'm close though. And so that was kind of nice to see. I always like to do, I don't know if you ever heard of the the kind of the self-improvement technique of writing a letter to yourself. So you write a letter to yourself. I think we did this in teacher training one year. You write a letter to yourself uh, from a from the perspective of the future you. And then you send it to yourself or you give it to somebody else and they send it to you several months after you write it. And that way you get it in the mail, let's say three months after you wrote it or whatever time frame you need or want as a check-in point. And then you see when you open the email, or I'm sorry, when you open the letter and you read the letter, am I close? And so you write it in the future tense. You know, I'm so happy that I got really on the right track with my health. And I'm so glad that I'm exercising every day. I'm so glad that I dropped so much of that stress by meditating daily. Like you write out you living your goals and what that looks and feels like to you. And so you're sort of 
tricking your nervous system, tricking your mind, tricking your psyche into feeling like it's already happening. And then when you get the letter, uh, it's either harsh reality (laughs) and you haven't done anything, or it's a confirmation that you have been living according to your plan. And I am a big planner. I don't know about you. I'm a big planner and um, I usually can pretty much stay on track. And you can too, even if you sort of feel like you're not a good planner, it it really just takes the plan, even the best manifestors in the world. That's really what they're doing. They're, They're sort of hijacking their own mind, flooding it with thoughts of them experiencing what they want right now so that when they do the work to get there, they've already been in that mental space. There's so much more I could say about this. I I won't though, because we've done, I've done some episodes on manifestation recently. And so I don't want to reiterate a lot of, a lot of what has already been covered. I would definitely go back the last handful of episodes with Jill and with Allison. Oh my God. So great. All about manifesting. At the end of the day, though, manifestation doesn't go anywhere if you don't have a plan of action. So it's really just one piece of it. So as this quarter comes to an end and as we head into April, there is nothing but possibility. So if you're feeling like you're you're off track, the good news is there's no pressure, right? There's only the pressure that you put on yourself. So you can just as easily remove that pressure or ignore that pressure and instead focus on some positive things. And what is it that you really want to have more of in your life? What's a way of being? What's a way of teaching? Could be a million different things. So I wanted to start out by talking about one of uh, the things I posted on my Instagram because it got a lot of traction and I found it curious that it did because I'm always just curious as to what sparks people's interest. And it was a a picture of me teaching at an event a few years back. And it was one of those things where a good friend of mine was having a wellness related event. And she asked me to teach the yoga class part of the event. And I didn't know what to expect. It was not in a yoga studio. So already I was like a little bit thinking, where are they going to put us, (laughs) you know? It ended up being in this beautiful space that had a beautiful space for yoga. And so while it wasn't a yoga studio, it had these beautiful windows. If you saw the picture on my Instagram, it just is just is such a great space. What happened though, when I showed up was there were over a hundred people and typically in the studios I had been teaching in before COVID, the most was like 50 people. So this was easily a hundred a hundred people, maybe more. And so I don't typically teach a class that size. And so when I walked in and I saw the people setting up, I thought, okay, so this is, this is what energetically and just in the 3d I'm going to be working with here. And so I was able to just sort of immediately acknowledge that. And I don't ever I mean, I don't want to say I don't ever, but I very rarely practice with the classes that I teach. And so that wasn't an issue for me. I I mean, there would not have been space to put a mat down. In fact, I couldn't even move side to side. Uh, All I could do is pretty much stand in the center of the very front row 
and teach by just talking to them. And so the point of my post was not to say, oh my God, look at me. I taught this class with all these people because I didn't do anything to generate those people. Those people were going to my friend Rachel's event and I just happened to be teaching yoga. So they certainly weren't there because of me. They knew there would be yoga and that's what I was there to give them is yoga. Um, so it's not about that. And it's also not about you thinking that you should strive to teach big classes because honestly, you can have a really meaningful class with three or four people or one person versus 50 or more. So it's not about any of that. What it's more about and the point of my post is it's more about carrying yourself in a way, in such a way as a teacher that you can handle whatever happens. You can handle whatever happens. You walk into the room and there's 50 people. You walk into the room and there's three people. You walk into the room and somebody, when you start teaching, starts asking questions. Yes, this happened to me. You start teaching and you're halfway through the class and somebody passes out. Yes, has happened to me. You, you know, start teaching and you realize that someone is being very disruptive. Yes, has happened to me. And while these are really extreme examples, even if we just take the regular day to day, my vision for you as a teacher, and you can chuck this if it doesn't resonate with you, my, and I'm not saying my, this is my vision for you, like I'm trying to prescribe who you are, but when I work with yoga teachers, there are some fundamental principles and beliefs really that I have about how I support teachers to teach. And one of the main principles is that you can just walk in a room and do it. You don't need to prepare. You don't need to practice before. You don't need to practice with them. You don't need to have a, a special sequence. You can jump out of your car, run into the room, teach it, and then drive away and go out to eat or drive away and go home and take care of your kids. There isn't all this stuff on the front end, on the back end. There isn't all this mental energy being expended while you're there, when you leave, second guessing yourself, when you're there wondering, am I doing this right? Are they liking this? There isn't any afterwards running up to people. what do you think? Like that just isn't part of my vision for teachers that work with me. It's that it's a seamless integration with who you are, that there's very little distinction between you as you are and you when you're teaching. And when, and I believe when we can show up as a teacher like this, it allows it to feel so easy and so integrated with who we are that it becomes effortless. It's like when you watch a really good marathon runner and you're just like, oh my God, that person is running like it's nothing. And the Boston Marathon, of course, I live in Boston. The Boston Marathon is a perfect example of that because you see world-class runners bumping up against and elite athletes bumping up against, you know, amateurs and weekend warriors. 
And so you can see the visual demonstration of what it looks like to be running from effort and what it looks like to be unconsciously competent, just running like the wind. And that's really my ultimate place for teachers to get to, because when you're there, it really feels effortless and easy and fun and joyous. And it's in that space that you're able to be yourself. And right now you might be listening to me and you might be thinking, Karen, I am so far away from that. Everything I'm doing takes so much thought and takes so much time. And that's okay, right? I've been there too. It's just that there is a way for you to move past that. It really takes though you recognizing that the way it is right now, it doesn't have to be like this. And honestly, having that thought, if you have that thought, you're already sort of a pioneer because the yoga industry is really sort of out there and teachers. When I say the yoga industry, I don't necessarily mean the business of yoga. I mean, the teachers of yoga are out there just perpetuating this, this thought that it has to be hard. And the reason I know that is because every teacher I talk to says it feels really hard. And when they talk to people, they're told, well, you'll have to wait till you'll get to you until you get more experience. Well, that's just the way it is. Oh yeah. I know that sucks. I mean, there's nothing more common than a yoga teacher pity party, like back before COVID when teachers would get together, that's what they would do. When you go to teacher trainings, that's what teachers do. You know, it always amazed me whenever I would do anatomy at 200 hour teacher trainings and the teachers would, you know, in the trainings would all be sort of supporting each other from an emotional standpoint over the idea that the teacher training was so hard and so long and taking so much time out of their personal life. And I get that. And, you know, on some level, you know, teachers sign up for teacher training of their own choice. No one's forcing them to do it. And instead of that, how about, oh my God, I am so excited that I get to be here, that I am here, that I believed in myself to invest in this training to start this part of my life, you know? So, you know, some of it maybe is neuroscience. Some of it is maybe um, just, I don't even want to say positive thinking because it's not just Pollyanna like that, but it's just really, I think a matter of who do you want to show up as? That's really what it is. That's really what it is. It's like, who do you want to show up as? Do you want to show up as the complainer, the woe is me, the unempowered, the I teach it this way because that's the way I was taught? Or do you want to show up as the effortless teacher who moves about the space on their feet with ease, who interacts with students from a place of I'm here to empower you, the student? not to tell you or prescribe to you what you should do. I mean, there's so much to it. So anyway, and believe me, I am not holding myself out as the standard. It's just that when I was going through my phone and I saw that picture the other day, it took me back to that moment of walking in the room and seeing all these people and thinking, okay, this is what we're dealing with. 
what can I call on inside me so that this is a great experience for them and so that I don't freak out? And, you know, I'm a product of my own teaching method. The momentum magic method that I've recently coined as my way of working with teachers, I'm a product of that. I've sort of self-taught myself this method and seen it work in me. And now I have the joy of working with teachers over the past several years inside my program using this method and seeing it work with them. So that's what I mean. Like if you were to walk into a room right now and there were a hundred people that you'd never met, would you put your mat down? Would you have a panic attack? Would you teach in a way where your voice was cracking, your heart was racing? Would you want to run out of the room? Would you do it and then go home and beat yourself up for the next three days that you didn't do it right? Like all of these things are signs. They're signs. And sometimes when I talk to teachers on the phone, it's like the universe is giving them so many signs that they're off track. And they can say to me, I know I'm off track, but they're unwilling to to do the next thing to get on the right track. And I get that too, because sometimes it takes time and money. And so it's really a matter of how much of a problem is it for you to that you want to fix. And it's not even a matter of, are you willing to do the work? It's like, what stories are you telling yourself that's preventing you from fixing the problem? Because I know a lot of the stories are things like, oh, it'll get better. Oh, I can fix it myself. Oh, I can, I can ask chat GPT how to get over my teaching anxiety. I can ask chat GPT had a cue for warrior two. You could, <laughs> you could do that. I'm sure there's content on the internet. I mean, that's all chat GPT is, right? You know that, right? It's basically just assimilating what's already out there. It's the fancier Google. So, so with that, that was one thing I wanted to share. And then the other thing I wanted to share from one of my recent reels uh, was a tip for improving, I'm sorry, increasing your confidence when you teach. And it's a really simple to do tip. So I wanted to tell you in case you missed that reel. And it's a really simple one. It's basically use less words. If you want to increase your confidence, well, let me say it the opposite way. When teachers are nervous, they tend to talk too much, right? Like they want to fill the space with words. They're they're sort of hesitant to let there be silence. There's a confusion around what to say. So when a teacher is confused about what to say, the tendency is to say way more than to say way less. So a sign of a nervous teacher, a confused teacher, an overwhelmed teacher is that they use too many words. And so what that does for the student is it confuses the student or it makes it hard for them to know what you want them to do. So a good way to improve your confidence is to say less things for every pose. I usually say three to four actions per posture is fine. And you don't need to include the name of the pose. You don't need to include breath cues. So those are three action cues. Step your foot forward, drop your back heel, reach your arms up. That's it for warrior one. Take your feet wide, take your arms wide, lean to the side, hand on knee, arm up to the sky. That's it, that's triangle. So 
you know, there's lots of levels of nuance. Like we can add some breath, we can add the name of the pose, we can add an anatomy-based cue at the end. The reason we can do that though, is because we've been intentionally brief in our action cues. And the reason that allows us to be more confident is because we're giving them space because we're saying less. We're giving us space because we're saying less. We have a format now that we're using for our cueing, action cues, three or four tops. And because it's less words, it allows us to be more present, to, to breathe at a regular pace, right? When we're trying to say so much, it's like, oh, we're running out of breath. We're trying to fit all these things in. We're trying to speak as fast as our brain is telling us all these things to say from that script we got in teacher training. So it's slowing it down, slowing it down, being intentional about what you're saying. Bring your feet together, bend your knees, drop your hips low, take your arms up. Bring your hands to your heart center, twist to the right. Take your left hand down, take your right arm up, take a deep breath in and then release and forward fold. Like there's just what you need to do. And yes, we can take it up a notch and add an anatomy-based cue. We're gonna be speaking more today about feeling-based or somatic cues. So that's, that's the takeaway. That's the quick win is to say less per pose, three to four action cues per pose. And one of the other reasons that should help improve your confidence is you're most likely gonna see your students take right action quicker. And so there's nothing more confidence boosting for a teacher than when they are cueing and they see their students are getting it. That's connection. That's oftentimes where confidence lies because you're, you're speaking, they're not, and their bodies though are the confirmation that what you're speaking is hitting home for them. And that's what will start to happen. And that's one of the reasons why it can be so confidence building. So try it. Send me a DM on Instagram. Let me know how it goes. So what I wanted to talk about in more detail today is a topic I don't often talk about. <laughs> um, I wanted to go over it today, though, in more detail, and that is the topic of the somatic-based cue, the feeling-based cue. So inside my program, I have a cues framework. And it's based on four types of cues that I teach. Action, alignment, anatomy, and feeling-based or somatic. And so we're going to take a deeper dive into the somatic-based cue. And we're going to look at seven different kinds. I probably could have written out more, but I'm picking seven. Seven different types of cues that fall into the somatic bucket. So the first type of cue is one that I don't love. And I wanted to include it because it is so common. I also hear it a lot. I'm also a certified personal trainer. I do some online workouts with different trainers. I hear it a lot from personal trainers. And that's the cue where you basically say, where you're basically telling them how they should feel. So in some of the exercise videos I do, it sounds like, oh, you should feel your glutes working here. Oh, you should feel your hamstring stretching here. Oh, we're going to wind down with a couple of good stretches. Oh, you should feel your hip flexor stretching here. So again, I am not in the business of saying I'm right, you're wrong. 
Uh, I am, though, of the mindset that it's helpful to bring up different perspectives to just allow for conversation and different ways of looking at things, especially when they are things that are very prevalent, very common. And so this particular type of cue under the bucket of or in the bucket of feeling-based cues is common. And so you know, I don't know how it lands on you when you are taking a class and the teacher says in downward dog, oh, you should be feeling your hamstring stretch here. So when I hear should, I should do something, I must do something, um, I need to do something, all of those types of words imply you don't have a choice, right? You have to do it. And that's the last kind of languaging we really, for the most part, want to be using in yoga teaching, like we're about guiding people, not telling them exactly what to do. Um, and it doesn't really allow for different bodies and different expressions of similar poses. And when as a student, we hear you should feel, well, that implies that you should feel, meaning that if you don't feel, you're doing it wrong. And so that's also another place we don't wanna send our students because especially when it comes to feeling, feeling is very personalized. And so I think it's helpful to sort of put that, shelve that cue. And instead, let's talk about some of the other ty types of cues that get into somatics. So one that I love to use and that I teach in my program is the inquiry question. So you've probably had a teacher do this you're practicing, you're in half pigeon, and the teacher says, what do you notice about your right hip here? Or you're in low lunge, and the teacher says, do you feel any sensation in the back hip? So it's basically the teacher asking you something that, of course, you're not going to verbally respond because we're in a yoga class. However, you're going to answer it for yourself in your own mind. And the other really cool thing about using this approach is when you as the teacher share a cue in the form of a question, it, it tends to really capture people's attention because you're asking them something. What do you? And remember, your voice is a tool. So as you ask the question, it's going to sound different than if you're just using the same tone. So if I'm saying step your foot forward, drop your back heel, reach your arms up, that's generally the same tone. So I'm using my voice as a tool there in a very consistent tone of voice and volume of voice. But if I say, what do you notice? What do, now I say, <laughs> um, or, you know, what, hmm, what do you notice here? You know, I'm using inflection. I'm maybe pausing, I'm maybe saying, hmm, what do you notice here? Or maybe I bring my voice down. So using a question automatically does this, but using a question and using tone of voice is also a great combination for waking people up, getting them present, bringing them back into the space. Because you know, everybody goes in and out of being in the space when they're practicing with you, right? I mean, they're thinking about their grocery list. They're thinking about what they're going to do when they leave. It's just that when you ask them a question, it's going to bring them back. So that's another kind of somatic cue. So the third one is using a prop 
to increase sensation. So let's say in downward dog, you have your students squeeze a block between the thighs. So automatically the sensation of the block against the thighs is going to create an increase in the feeling, the feeling of the block touching the thighs. So there's the feeling right there because of the placement of the block. And then there's also the purpose, right? I'm not suggesting you do this just to be cool or just for the hell of it. I'm saying do it because it's got a purpose. So now when you put, when you ask them to put the block between the thighs in downward dog and you say, hug your legs against that block, this is going to help you tap into the engagement, the contraction of your adductors as you move the thighs in closer to the block to keep the block from falling on the ground. So now you've connected it maybe to the anatomy. Even if you never said the name of the muscle group, you're giving them a tactile experience to help them notice the movement of the hips in downward dog, which is adduction. Uh, you could also put a blanket under the hip in half pigeon and have that be a place of relaxation. You could have them put, I mean, kind of the traditional restorative one is to put a folded blanket over the midsection in Shavasana and the weight of the blanket. Like now weighted blankets are all the rage. Don't you get those ads on Instagram? You could put um, blocks under the hands in down dog. You could put a block between the feet in wheel. So there's lots of different ways. And maybe the block between the feet is less somatic and it's more instructive because it has to do with keeping the feet straight because you don't want the glute max to create external rotation. So I'll maybe toss that one to the side. But if we're looking more at restorative poses, I think you get the idea that it's really meant to provide different sensation. Although I will say the block between the thighs and down dog is not for restorative purposes. It's more for muscular highlighting a muscle that's in action or a muscle group that's in action during that pose. That might be hard for someone to tap into if they didn't have the block there. Or the block might be considered a stepping stone to them doing down dog without the block and now recruiting their adductors into that posture when before they use the block, that whole area of their body was just sort of dull. There was just nothing really happening there. So the fourth one is to speak to a muscle or a joint action. So this works really well in something like half pigeon when they're on the floor. And let's say the left leg is straight and the right leg is bent. So the right hip is in external rotation and flexion. And so you could speak on a feeling-based level to notice in this posture, your right hip is positionally open. And maybe you say external rotation, maybe you don't. Maybe you use the yoga phrase open, open hip. What do you notice about that? How does that hip feel compared to your other hip, which is more turning inward or internally rotated between me and you? You could speak to, let's say in standing, like a standing squat or even a low squat with both hips. So you have bilateral external rotation. You could speak to how does that feel in that posture? You could speak to, let's say in dancer's pose, the sensation of the arm that's reaching back with the hand reaching back for the foot. That shoulder joint is externally rotated and in extension. So that's a big stretch for the pecs. So that's the sensation you could speak to. So this one's a little harder because in order to speak to the somatics of this kind of 
with this kind of focus, you need to understand anatomy. It's not the kind of thing that you're just going to say unless you can back it up with knowing. And so this one I would stay away from if you're unfamiliar with the anatomy. Otherwise, go for it. That's another framework you can use. Um, the other thing you can do is guide them through breathing and relaxing. So I can't remember the reference, but I remember a while ago, I was reading a science, it was either an article online that was in one of the medical journals or science journals, or it was something in, it might've even been in my certified personal training curriculum, but it was basically a science-based article that was speaking about how so many times in yoga, people refer to releasing emotions in the hips as being part of deep restorative practices. And the article was basically suggesting that it's not so much that we literally store emotions in our hips, which I don't even know that anybody believes that, even though that's what a lot of teachers say. But anyway, um, I know there can be a lot of verbiage about holding, holding trauma in the body, holding emotions in the body. And I think the hips tend to be a target that people refer to. And what this article was basically saying was it wasn't so much that literally emotions are held there, which I think if we really went down that rabbit hole, we would come to the agreement that they're not. Um, what it was more saying is that on an emotional level, when we go into a yoga pose and we experience deep relaxation, it allows tension that we hold in certain parts of our bodies to be released. And when that tension release releases, we might, in, the student might interpret that as a release of the emotion when actually it's really still at the level of the body and the tension is being released. And so, you know, we can certainly, that's not to say, you know, if, if you are going into your classes and saying, release the emotions held in your hips, that that's necessarily bad or wrong. Again, I'm not here to, I'm, I'm not the yoga police. There are none, do whatever you want. I think though, that if we really think about it, that might be, might be a little bit misleading. Um, I don't know if you have an expertise in, in trauma and that sort of thing, maybe we should get you on the podcast and I'd certainly be open to doing that. I am certainly not a trauma expert. Um, I do know that on a belief level, there's a lot that we hold in our brain and in our mind. If you're out there making a distinction between brain and mind, obviously that's another rabbit hole. Uh, we could go down. I guess I'm just not thinking that the muscles at the level of muscle fibers and ADP and chemical exchange are holding emotions. So anyway, the point is, with relaxation, and we know because we're experts in guiding people through relaxing and deep breathing, they will just at the level of their body, their parasympathetic nervous system will turn on, they'll decrease levels of cortisol, uh, which is a stress hormone. They will, you know, in general, be able to trigger the relaxation response. And so if we ask them in a particular pose to breathe deeply, to, you know, envision maybe a certain part of their body relaxing more and more, getting heavier and heavier. And if we blend this type of cue with, um, with a prop type cue, we can even have that as an additional piece. 
that's giving them feedback. So this is where, you know, you can get really creative in being a guide and you can really give people just such a wonderful experience where they're able to offload so much. So the next one is kind of a simple one. It's to hold people longer in the pose. So this works well in things like frog and Hanumanasana and um, seated forward fold and seated straddle fold. Um, it's just a good, uh, not metric, it's just a good parameter to use to increase sensation, you know, and especially if you're teaching a lot of fast paced classes where that's like vinyasa or heated yoga or power yoga or even functional movement based classes you know, we're moving at a pretty good clip. So if you hold people longer and use that earlier thing I suggested around saying less, you're going to give your people and maybe add in some of the inquiry questions. You know, now we're sort of mixing and matching some of these techniques. You're going to really give your students an opportunity to feel their body. And so you can sort of choose, like maybe you go in with a framework one day and you say to yourself, I'm going to teach action cues and I'm going to hold them longer in every pose. I mean, in my program, I have so many cues frameworks I share with, with my teachers and it's so much fun because it allows you to mix and match different approaches to how you're going to teach a particular class. And so it allows you to teach a really similar sequence from class to class where you're not changing the architecture of the sequence, you're changing your cues. And because you are doing it intentionally before you go into the studio, it's like all of a sudden you're creating a different experience for them, but it's easy for you because you don't have to change the architecture of the sequence. You can just go in with a different framework. And this is what I mean back to what I said at the beginning, like you are a yoga teacher that has portable tools. You could stop on the street and gather five people together and throw down a quick 20 minute yoga class. You could go into a school, you could go into a church, you could go on vacation, you could walk down the beach. You just have that stuff ingrained in you. And so this kind of approach of using, um, holding them longer in a pose is another really good way to increase the feeling focus of a class. And then the last one is to use what I call contrary actions to open up the possibility for increased sensation. So think of this as the opposite of teaching an alignment-based class. So this would be the sort of thing where you sort of look for what might even seem like crazy things to ask your students to do as a way to allow them to feel their bodies in a different way. So this would be the class where you ask your students in warrior two to take their forward bent knee a little bit inward and then a little bit outward and then center it. It would be the class where you ask your students in down dog to bend their arms instead of straighten their arms and move back and forth between bending the arms and straightening the arms. It would be the class where you ask your students to move from plank to low plank to up dog without ever pointing the toes. It would be the class where you ask them to do a yogi squat with their feet turned in and their hips internally rotated. I mean, the stuff that would probably make Iyengar teachers cringe 
this is what I'm saying, because it's an opportunity to sort of play free and play free of a lot of the, you know, constraints that we often operate under that, you know, for a lot of our students, this is the way their bodies want to move. And we're looking at them through the lens of alignment and thinking we have to constantly be correcting them. Um, I did a really awesome 16 hours of training this past weekend with Jules Mitchell, and she's a specialty in the biomechanics of yoga. So we talked a lot about force vectors and uh, the forces at uh, work on bodies in poses. And this was part of what we talked about. And it really did um, open my eyes to how many more possibilities there are when we allow our students to kind of be in that messy space. And sometimes it's hard for us as yoga teachers because we go into teaching class thinking that there is a right way. And that can be a tough place to come from. I, being an alignment person, I'm sorry, an anatomy person, um, and really a, a, a lover of all things anatomy, I tend to lean more in the direction of teaching from alignment, teaching from functional movement, looking at things from the perspective of, you know, kind of uh, what muscles at work. But I also can go into these directions too. And, and I absolutely love that that's something, you know, that we have as an option as well. So those are the seven different types of approaches you can take when you are using a, a feeling-based cue. So number one, tell them how they should feel. We don't want to do that, I don't think. Number two, use an inquiry question. Number three, use a prop. Number four, speak to a muscle or joint action. Number five, guide them through breathing and relaxing. Number six, hold them longer in a pose. And number seven, use contrary actions to open up possibilities. So something that looks out of alignment. So before we wrap up, I just wanted to end this episode with a little bit of a revelation I had yesterday. It's so funny when I talk to teachers on the phone or on Zoom, uh, I always learn so much about, you know, their experiences and what's happening out there. And, you know, every teacher's experience is a little bit different. And at the same time, there's so much that's common and that always sort of blows my mind. Um, doesn't matter where they live for so many teachers, you know, and you may be in the same boat. There are just common areas where teachers struggle and those areas are super common. Um, this particular scenario I know is out there and might be you. Uh, and I'll tell you what it is. And she, she shared it with me. She basically said that she is a flight attendant and she started teaching about a year ago. And so she gave up some of her shifts at work because she took on some regular classes. And what she's finding is the time and money loss of that choice is just really bogging her down and sort of making her question if she's on the right track. Now, I'm taking a little bit of liberty here, you know, and kind of um, characterizing it. So if she's listening, she may clarify it with me in a DM and feel free to do that. I mean, I'm not using her name, of course. I think though that this avatar, this type, this type of yoga teacher is out there more than I actually maybe realized or recognized. And that is, and this again is where this might be you, the teacher who is teaching full time and teach, I'm sorry, the teacher who is working full time and teaching on the side. And I know that that's a combination that's out there because there aren't many yoga teachers well, I don't know about that. 
If you're a yoga teacher who does not have a full-time job and teaching fully supports you financially, that I think is pretty rare. I think that there probably are yoga teachers out there who don't work, but maybe have another reason why they don't work. Maybe their partner supports them or maybe they're home taking care of the family. And you know, maybe there's other reasons why they don't work. Totally cool. This is not a judgy thing. It's just a kind of a demographic thing. What I'm talking to now about now is the teacher who's teaching full-time, who's working full-time and teaching on the side. And the reason I'm focusing on this is exactly for the reason I brought up this one example, because if you, let's say, spend $3,000 on a teacher training and you take that $3,000, 200-hour teacher training, and then you get out of that teacher training and you cut back on the hours that you're working so that you can take on some classes to teach, and then you find that the free time you had before you were teaching is now gone and consumed with prepping for your classes, practicing yoga before you go in and teach the sequence, all the angst that happens before you teach, the going to teach the class, the coming home, the ruminating over, oh my God, how did I do? Oh my God, did they like it? Now you're maybe at the point where you're thinking, and how is this working? How did I want this? I'm losing money from the job because I'm not working as many hours and I'm losing almost all my free time because I'm doing all this prep for class. And how is this a good thing? Like, how did I end up here? And this is like sort of what I call the best laid plan doesn't work out that way. And it's not anybody's fault. It's sort of something that, Maybe if you had connected with the right person before you took that teacher training and mapped it all out, maybe you would have had a warning that this might not end out end up the way I want. It doesn't mean though that there isn't another way. And see, this is what I'm talking about, like at the beginning when I was speaking about the cues. There's so much to that situation that I can help you fix. And it has a lot to do with the same things that I would teach somebody if they weren't working a full-time job, if they were working a part-time job, or if they weren't working at all. And it has to do with how you're spending your time and what you're getting paid. And I think teachers sort of think that, I mean, time and money are the two variables in all of our lives that a lot of beliefs are out there about. I don't have enough time. I'm running out of time. When am I going to have time? And then money. I don't have enough money. I have all these bills. What do you mean pay for that program? I don't have any money. I don't have that much money per month. I'm waiting for this check. I mean, those are two loaded topics. And that's why in a way, they're sort of like the two easiest things to get some big improvements in, because if we can chip away at some of the things that impact our time and our money, we can really start to feel the weight come off. So if you are feeling, or let me phrase it this way, if you are someone who is working full-time and teaching on the side, and you're spending a lot of time prepping, and you're spending a lot of time after class just kind of kicking your own butt that it didn't go better. And a lot of the free time that you used to have before you started teaching is now poof, it's gone. <laughs> and you're now filling up all that free time or whatever free time you had with doing all these things to prep and to practice and all of it for your teaching. 
And then you go in to teach your class and you're paid 40 bucks after you drive there for 45 minutes, teach, do the check-in, do the, do the class, do the sign out, go home. You know, that's not a winning scenario. That's not a winning combination. So if that's where you're at, just send me a DM on Instagram and just include the words easy way, easy way. I want the easy way, not the hard way. And I'll give you some thoughts uh, of how, how you can get there. You know, of course, there's only so much I can do in an email or a DM. So I'll give you some thoughts that I'll just give you some quick wins. And then for more, we'll hop on a phone call and I can share more and we can go from there. So with that, that is the end of this episode, episode 234. I will see you uh, in the next quarter of 2023 uh, for next week's episode. So it's been so great spending time with you. And I hope to chat with you next week on the next episode of Conversations for Yoga Teachers. Namaste. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this latest episode. And thank you so much for being part of my community and for spending some time with me here on the show. I wanted to wrap up this episode with just a quick note. I have a brand new recorded workshop page, and I'm really excited to offer you an opportunity to watch recorded workshops whenever you want. I have the first installment of a workshop on the page on the website, and it is a short workshop all about how to give effective cues. And so all you need to do to watch this free workshop is go to my website, barebonesyoga.com, and you'll see the listing in the dropdown for recorded workshops. When you click that page, you'll see on that page, the link to sign up to watch that recorded workshop. I'll be adding more workshops in the future to this page. And it's a way that you can access educational and growth information for teachers without having to make a workshop at a particular time. I love to get together with teachers live, both in person and of course online, which is where I'm doing most of my interaction with teachers right now. However, I appreciate that sometimes people can't make a workshop or the time doesn't work for them or they're in a different time zone. So I want you to know that this page can be a resource for you so that as you're out there and you have questions about different things, or you have maybe a half an hour, 45 minutes that you wanna to devote to your continuing education as a teacher, you can just go to my website, pull up this recorded workshops page, and there will be resources there for you to take a look at. And all of the workshops that I share are all designed at number one, giving you information, and number two, giving you the skills that come from getting that information. It doesn't do you any good if I'm just giving you information on anatomy. If I don't show you how you can use it in your teaching to grow as a teacher, to grow your impact, then it's really not very useful. So all my workshops will have that dual focus sharing a little bit, and then showing you how to apply it. So I hope you'll check that out. If you have any questions or feedback, definitely let me know. Just send me an email, karen at barebonesyoga.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. And I look forward to hearing from you. Namaste.